As we were called on Monday, the dynamic duo is back together. Chuck Zada and Mark Schofield here on the Quick Kicks podcast for Thursday, July 28th. Uh, Mark, I know you were busy putting together this LSU piece yesterday, and that's actually what we're going to be talking about here today, huh? Yeah, you know, figure with um, training camps around the corner, um, season around the corner. I mean, we're basically a month out now to the first college games kicking off. Um, we're starting to dive into some of the SEC schools. Um, you know, we're going to be rolling out our platform for how we're going to cover both pro and college football this season at Inside the Pylon. One of the things we're going to be doing is having people dedicated to conferences and divisions. And I'm going to be uh, trying to cover the SEC as best as I can for ITP. Um, so I figured I'd look at um, one of the uh, uh, SEC schools that being LSU, to see if they can finally sort of knock off Alabama in that SEC West. Now, you gave yourself a pretty prime spot covering the SEC here, huh? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's, what is it, the privilege of seniority, I guess? Um, you know, being one of the, the, the veterans here at ITP, I get my, get my hands on the SEC, so it's going to be fun to cover that, especially for a guy that, you know, grew up in the Northeast, Um don't really have any rooting interests in the SEC. I just kind of get to observe it and watch it for the great football that gets played in that conference. Kind of weird being a veteran of two years, huh? Not even two years, man. We don't turn two <laughs> for another couple for about another month or so. Yeah, we still we have, have a big birthday party. Still have a little time to go. We got to get the uh, the festivities ready there. But I remember when I first saw this come across our uh, our workflow internally. I think it was actually titled the LSU running game, Mark Schofield, and and I looked at it. and I'm sitting there. I'm going. What Mark's already he's he's dominated the passing game, so now he's going to take on the running game. And then finally, I was able to read through it, and I realized, look, we're not just looking at the running game here. We're talking about how that potent LSU running attack influences what they're able to do in the passing game through play action. Yeah, and really, what I was looking at when I started looking at LSU's offense from last season was their passing game as a whole. I mean, we know that this is a very potent running attack. You know, this is a, a team that you know ranked first in the SEC last year in yards per carry with 5.5 per carry. You know, the only SEC school, if I'm reading this right, that was over five yards a carry. I mean, you've got you know Fournette coming back, who's you know Heisman candidate. You know, Phil Steele has him as his top running back in the SEC. He's on his preseason All SEC team. Um, but there are people that actually don't even think he's the best running back on the team. Darius Geis who was a freshman last year, actually averaged 8.5 yards a carry in the action that he got. So you've got two great running backs, and you've got a solid offensive line up front that's bringing some people back. They have arguably the best center in the uh, SEC, Ethan Posick, uh, who's coming back. They've got some other guys on that offensive line, William Clapp, who's coming back. Um, so this is going to be a good running attack again. But the question mark for LSU is going to be that passing game. They've got two nice targets um, to throw to. They've got um, two wide receivers in Dural and Dupree who are coming back. And they've got a returning starting quarterback in Brandon Harris who's going to need to make that next step. So when I set out kind of looking at LSU's passing game and how they can you know, incorporate more of a passing attack to make this more of a balanced offense so they don't need to rely on that running game so much. I kind of went through last year, saw what things worked and what things didn't. And what really stood out more than anything was the play-action passing game. So play-action, obviously, everyone's familiar with it. It's a staple at you know just about every level of the game. But what was it about the LSU play-action attack that makes it different from other ones, or really just that caught your eye on film at first? Well, 
A couple of things. I mean, again, you have to consider that given the ability of this ground game to move the ball in the run and attack, it's going to be in the back of every defender's mind that this is going to be a run-first team. So they play to that with the play-action passing game. And what really sort of stands out is something that gets overlooked a lot, I think, when people talk about the play-action passing game. People always kind of assume that what really sells it is the fake between the quarterback and the running back. And as a quarterback, I'd love to sit here and say, look, you know, it it really really amounts to the quarterback carrying out a great play-action fake. But that's not always what really sells the defense that a run play might be coming Linebackers, for example, they're not looking in the backfield first to try to diagnose a play. They're reading run keys from the offensive lineman. They're looking to see, especially a team like LSU that runs a lot of zone stuff, see shoulders. They see a, you know the, all, all the offensive linemen turn and they start to see everybody's left shoulder. Yep. Oh my gosh, that's going to be a zone play to the other side. You know, If I'm seeing left shoulders that are all flowing to their right, my left, that linebacker is going to flow to where he thinks a zone running play might be coming. He's reading that. He's not looking to Brandon Harris in the backfield and Fournette and trying to see if the ball is getting handed off. He's trying to read his run keys, those linemen, that center and those two guards, what they're doing. And then if it's a passing play and he sees them instantly rise up and start to get into their anchor to get ready to pass block, you know, it makes it a little bit easier for him. So what makes it really tough is when the offensive line can sell runs somehow, show those linebackers some run keys – and then set up the pass block, and that's what LSU does very well. Walk me through the footwork on that, because you're talking about obviously when we're looking at you know running pass blocking, it's very different from a footwork and from an appearance perspective. Do they ever transition into a pass blocking look at any point, or do they pretty much just show run blocking all the way through? Well, it's interesting. One of the plays that I highlight is a play action pass. It's kind of the first play that I look at after showing an example of that LSU lead toss, which everybody probably knows by now. It's one of their staple run plays. They've got you know 21 personnel with an I formation, usually with a slot. And Harris will take the snap and literally just give a quick toss to Fournette or Geis or whoever the tailback is almost immediately after taking the snap. And then it's got zone blocking sort of up front, but it's got power elements to it. It's a really you know, well-designed offensive scheme. And actually, Andrew Pina wrote a great piece for us on Inside the Pollen almost two years ago, breaking down how that comes together. So I show that to give you a sense of how that orchestrated movement up front looks. And you can see you're looking at it from the defense's angle. All those linemen flow out to their right at the snap. And they'll do that for the first initial two, one or two steps when they show that and then retreat and anchor to pass block. Yep. I show a play against uh, Mississippi State where looking at the right guard, I mean, it, they show that it's a zone run and play to their left. So that right guard, like everybody else, that first step is a reach step with his left. And now if it's going to be a zone block and play, that next step from that lineman is going to be a, a crossover step with that right foot as they kind of get themselves an angle onto the area that they need to attack and block. Because remember, in zone blocking schemes, you're not blocking a man, you're blocking an area. So you're kind of getting yourself as far as you can to the left at almost a 45-degree angle off the line of scrimmage, and then you're looking for work. So this right guard on this pass play, he takes that first reach step, and he takes almost a half crossover step. So it looks like that first step and a half, that linebacker sees, he sees reach step, and he sees what looks to be a cross step. So he's thinking zone run and play. But the right guard then 
cuts that second step short, and then that's when he starts to anchor. And that's really all it takes because by the time the linebacker then sees that and sees him start to anchor, you're now a second and a second and a half where that linebacker's been frozen, think and run, and he's not getting into his zone. So looking at that, and, and, and you mentioned that again, you're just it, it's enough that even though those linemen might not be getting themselves into – perfect position necessarily it still freezes those linebackers enough to the point where you don't necessarily need to worry about them too much just because mentally they haven't been able to process that that's right and what it does is it expands throwing lanes particularly in the intermediate range of the field i mean this play that i'm talking about actually goes for a deep touchdown but i'm really trying to focus on how that movement up front forces those linebackers to stay at home to try to read, to try to process, and prevents them from getting drops into their intermediate zones. On our later play against Alabama, you've got Reggie Ragland, who was drafted. We saw him down in the Senior Bowl, probably one of the premier inside linebackers um, in last year's class, if not the best inside linebacker in last year's class, kind of your prototypical inside linebacker. And he gets frozen and can't get back until late in the play. I mean, we're talking Harris carries out the fake, sets up his drop, and only then does Ragland start to retreat. By then, you've got an out route and another crossing route coming behind them, and just big throwing lanes, just like big areas of real estate where Harris doesn't have to make a perfect throw. He's got you know a wide-open throwing window to put the ball into. I want to dig into uh, those throwing lanes and the typical route combinations you see off this in a second, but one last question on this, because obviously it sounds like this is able to confuse a defense pretty easily here. I'm wondering what the potential downside is for LSU in taking this approach. Well, I don't know that necessarily that there's a downside. They just need to execute because, you know, if you get, for example, a blitz where, you know, you're a linebacker and you don't care, you know, what you, you don't have a read responsibility. You're just coming. Sure then you might be able to split through zone blocking schemes up front. Or if you're an edge defender, like LSU, like a lot of teams, they run that split zone where offensive line flows to the left, but you've got either you know a wing back or a tight end, or some cases a fullback, because they use a lot of eye formations, cut them back to the opposite side to seal out that edge defender. Well, if you've got an edge defender that is quick off the ball, doesn't have or doesn't you know, care about sort of contained responsibilities. He's just told to crash inside immediately. If he can get inside that outside that blocker that's coming to the outside on that split zone design and beat him to the pocket, then you might have a sack or a strip sack situation. So those blitzes and things like that might be a problem. Is this something that you see at the NFL level at all? I mean, just kind of going through mentally, is this something that a team like the Broncos might run at some point? I mean, a lot of teams incorporate elements like this. I mean, think about a couple of years past when we were, as Patriots fans, pull our hair out when we'd see this play-action design where you had a guard sort of peeling backside to... <laughs> sure. <laughs> I mean, you remember that. Yep. Where you're trying to, like, sell movement to one side and when you peel a guy back to handle the edge defender. I mean, you know, just the fact that LSU has this great run game and, you know, if we get this piece up that I'm talking about, all teams try to use, you know, try to make movement up front sell defenders on a run play when they run, you know, when they pass the ball, when they use play action passes. Just LSU does it very well from the film that I've studied. So getting back now to uh, the, the typical routes that we're seeing LSU employ on these play action passes, 
are they typically targeting uh, that area right behind the linebackers? Are they going down the field uh, on the edges? Where do you typically see they them do, going? They do both. I mean, they don't really try to attack just one area of the field. The first play action pass that I highlight in the piece, it's a, it's a downfield pattern where they've got two corner routes and a post route. It's basically a 7-8-7 combination where you've got the tight end um, running the corner route, a slot receiver running the post, and the other guy, the outside receiver running the 7. They've done sale concepts where they'll you know, they'll run the play action fake. They'll have where they did it this time. They started with slot formation. They motion the slot guy to the other side of the field. Then he comes back on sort of a crossing route. And then you have the guy that started out on the outside running go. Um, they've done it where they'll just have sort of a post and an out combination. Again, they do so much out of eye formation and out of slot formation with those two guys, Doral and Dupree, where there's sometimes just two receiver routes. I mean, they really sell you on the run game. They'll keep the tight end, and they'll show you only two guys in the pattern, but they sell the run fake so effectively that even though you've got four secondary defenders, sometimes there's an example that I highlight in the piece against Florida. You've got defensive backs that are either playing a robber or a free safety. They've got their eyes in the backfield or watching those offensive linemen and read of run keys as well. And it takes them a while to scramble back into their zone responsibilities. You mentioned that pretty much everyone is involved in this run fake. Do they have? Do their receivers do anything like faking a stock block off the line of scrimmage or anything like that? Or are they pretty much just running routes? No, they're pretty much just running routes. And I'm not surprised. I mean, a lot of times as a receiver, I mean, I only played it for one year in college. But, you know, you're either... Unless you have a designated like crackback responsibility to the inside on say a toss play, yep, you're just running guys off. I mean, you're just trying to get you know your cornerback and then hopefully the safety that's rotated to your side of the field, at least get them thinking that you're running a pass route, even if it's a clear run play. So I'm I'm not surprised that on these play action plays they're just running routes because they're showing them the same look that they would on a run play. What uh what other kinds of wrinkles did you see when you were uh, looking at this? Anything else stand out to you? Well, another thing that's not in the play-action passing realm, but another concept that I really expect to see a lot of from LSU this year is sort of that switch verticals concept. Again, they, with the work that they do out of slot formation with those two big receivers that they have, you know, you can get guys open down the field when you go switch verticals. If you've got man coverage, which you'll probably see a lot of if you're LSU, given the effectiveness of this run game, you'll probably have an extra defender in the box, maybe a safety and then you'll see man coverage with these two guys go switch verticals and try to get those guys working upfield and getting some separation from defenders. So I wouldn't be surprised to see a lot of that. And they do a lot of stuff that you expect that you see in college and in the pros, you know, spot concepts, drive concepts, spacing concepts, things that we expect to see. The one key, I think, to all of this is going to be Brandon Harris and his development as a quarterback. What's the uh, single biggest area of focus that he needs to work on there? You know, I talk a lot about decision-making when evaluating quarterbacks and talking about how quarterbacks need to improve and develop. And uh, it is in the area of decision-making. With It's not the way I usually phrase it where he needs to take better care of the football. He needs to show more confidence. He needs to pull the trigger. Watching his game um, last year, there were some times when, you know, he needs to pull the trigger. I mean, they had a, a play against Arkansas where they had like a third and four, and they had curl concepts where it's just all curls. And he had two curls to the right side of the formation that were both wide open. And it was against a 4-2-5, and one of the linebackers was slow to rotate over to those curl routes and try to get under him. So he had thrown lanes to both of those guys, but 
he blinked and pulled the ball down, then was flushed out of the pocket and had to throw it away. It's moments like that where he needs to show more confidence in himself as a thrower and as a passer and as a decision maker that trust his eyesight, trust his reading of the defense and trust what he sees and pull the trigger because they can have all these plays schemed up for him. They can have a great play action scheme game, you know, ready for him to implement. They can rely on the running game. But if you've got third and five and you've got two open receivers and you don't pull the trigger, they're going to be cut and drive short. And that's not how you're going to upthrown Alabama in the SEC West. Dethrone. Upthrown. I don't know what I I'm was, saying. I, I, I was going to ask you I about upthrowing. Words, man. I, I didn't know if that was something that I just hadn't gotten to in Game of Thrones yet or where you were going with it. But it, it was. It's a Skyrim reference. How about that? Now you're you're well beyond anything that I'm capable Look, of discussing. I am almost forty years old, but at my heart, I'm still a bit of a nerdy dork. What can I say? I like video games. I like Game of Thrones. I like reading fantasy stuff. What can I say? Well, look, I will tell you this: we just went through, uh, you know, the first team that you're looking at in the SEC. You have proved yourself worthy and more, and for that, I upthrown you. Oh, I, I I thank you, my humble liege. With that, we are going to call it a day. Chuck's out in Mark Schofield. Done here on Thursday. Only one day left in the week. And you know what that means, Mark. What do we got tomorrow? Kicker Friday, baby. Yes, sir. Mark gets to take a little bit of the day off, sits in the host chair. We're going to talk kickers all day tomorrow. That's tomorrow on the Inside the Pylon Quick Kicks Podcast. Podcast.